0: Blog Talk Radio. Blog Talk Radio.
1: Today on Backroom Politics, we talk the Pulitzer Prize going to The Guardian and The Washington Post on their Snowden coverage. We talk about Secretary Sebelius' resignation from HHS. At the 5 o'clock hour, we'll have special guest Del Weaver. New York Times bestselling author of Rawhide Down and Bloomberg, criminal justice correspondent, and the GOP hypocrisy of family values. Can they get out of their own way when it comes to regaining their traction? That and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics.
2: Live. From Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell.
1: And good afternoon, out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics on Blog Talk Radio Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington D.C. Join me as they do every Tuesday. Normally, to my left would be the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's second congressional district, the Congressman Honorable Al Swift, but he is stuck. In a line at the House Post Office on business oh, up there, Washington well, House, of Representatives. House of Representatives. I mean, yeah. this is a former representative. He's yeah. stuck in a line at the post office. <laughs> to my, he'll be here shortly, joining us. Me to my twelve o'clock, across the table, he is the former Vice President of the National Broadcasting Corporation for Government Affairs. He is the former floor chief of then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hello, Bob.
3: Good afternoon on this crummy, rotten, rainy day in Washington. This Justin. is a crummy... I thought we were done with winter, and it's going to be freezing tonight. Yeah. yeah. Great. I don't understand that, but I think it's probably Congress's fault.
1: Uh, and probably. <laughs> and to my right, ironically, he is the former Undersecretary of Commerce for International Affairs. He is a Senate staffer in Washington <sighs> Center and a very handsome, distinguished fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan.
2: Hey, Justin. Uh.
1: Hello. Carl Tuvin is celebrating Passover to our Jewish listeners, uh, you know, Lahain, having Passover to you and yours and your families, and joining us on the air from remote locations we don't even know where, she is the former House Counsel for Homeland Security under Betty Thompson, she's a former Obama appointee as General Counsel of the Maritime Administration, she's the Honorable Denise Kraft.
4: hi Denise. Hi Justin, greetings from Fayetteville, North Carolina. Woo! <laughs> oh, down, your own, down, down by your tin. Yes, I am.
1: There you go. Hey, uh, I want to start off, before we get started and everything, we've got a busy show today, but I, I do want to talk about one thing real quick on a serious note. Uh, today, uh, April 15th, along with being Tax Day, but today is the one-year anniversary of the bombings and the horrific events that surrounded the bombings at the Boston Marathon on Patriots Day exactly one year ago today. Uh, a lot of media coverage going on about it. However, we here at from Politics just want to say one thing about this. Uh, it, the events were tragic. Law enforcement and first responders continue to demonstrate heroism beyond the regular call of duty. Uh, when times get tough, the people in the first responder community, and in this case the people of Boston, show why they are in fact Boston strong. For those, who lost, for those who lost their lives, we keep them in our memories and our prayers. For those who were directly affected, who were injured, and those who had family members that were injured, our support and our prayers continue to go out to you. But we just wanted to just take a couple of minutes and say, you know what, to, to those who listen to us in Boston, we support you. Our thoughts are with you today. And you guys continue to be Boston strong, and we are Boston strong with you. Uh, that being said, uh, we'll keep you guys in our thoughts and our prayers all day. Let's get right to it, folks. The first topic of business today. Uh, by the way, you can join us uh, on the air if you wish, toll free, 877-662-3713. You can email me your questions at justin at backroompolitics.org, or you can tweet your questions to me at backroompolitics on the Twitter system. Uh, first line of business, the Pulitzer Prize goes to the Guardian, and the Washington Post for their coverage of Edward Snowden. Oh,
2: let's just
1: be clear about this. Uh, I've got so many thoughts on this, but, uh, Bob, you are former vice president of a media source, obviously one of the largest media sources in the country, the National Broadcasting Corporation, NBC. What do you think about the Pulitzer Committee coming up and giving the Guardian and the Washington Post dual Pulitzers for their Snowden coverage? Uh-huh. Go! How about
3: it? <laughs> it's an unusual uh, award. It is usually given for insightful political uh, reporting, in, uh, You know, working on interesting issues, finding out uh, some, uh, some of the problems that are going on someplace on Capitol Hill or someplace else. That is, really, uh, is really deep work and hard background re- reportage. This really doesn't seem to fit that, and I'm not. Uh, I mean, it obviously is. It's it's, it's fair to say that the uh, uh, the story, uh, the background, the the reality of the facts of the, of the uh, Snowden situation is is a major major uh, in, intelligence problem and issue. But I'm not so sure that there was a great deal of of, 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 of fundamental work and research uh, on the reporters. It's an unusual, it's a big story, but it's an unusual story in the way that it was so public all of a sudden, but it wasn't so great because wonderful reporting was being done, it was just that the story was coming out all over the place.
1: Well, I mean, first of all, I I want to read the citation that was put out by the Pulitzer Prize Jury uh, at Pulitzer.org. For distinguished examples of meritorious public service by a newspaper or news site through the use of its journalistic resources, including the use of stories, editorials, cartoons, photographs, graphics, videos, databases, and multimedia or interactive presentations or other visual material, a gold medal awarded to the Washington Post and the Guardian U.S. It, it, Alan, going off of their citation... I just don't see The Guardian having that much meritorious about it, other than they recruited, convinced, and got a guy who was marginal at best in his levels of seniority at the NSA for disclosing national secrets.
5: Yeah, let's remember what happened here. Snowden steals the stuff. He's a contractor. He steals a lot of stuff. (laughs) Hundreds of thousands of documents. He turns it over to a woman he barely knew, who is a film documentary maker, a uh, documentary filmmaker. Um, she, in turn, says, you know, there's this guy who used to be at the Post, Bert Gilman, who did a lot of work after 2001, and then there's this guy for The Guardian. He's not even really a journalist. He lives in Brazil this guy Greenwald, um, but she, they were two people known to her. She was the connection. She was almost an accidental connection to Snowden, and then she was the link to the Post and, and to the Guardian. Um, it, 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 as, as Bob was saying, usually you, you go find your story. You go dig it up. Now, having said that, stories come all sorts of different ways. And the Pentagon Papers got one, but for the New York Times way back when. But that was a historical piece looking back. This is ongoing stuff. There's a lot of national secrets that are involved here. It's clearly illegal. You bring these papers in. The Post, before they were done, put 28 people on this thing. They threw everything at it. They dug. They talked. They gathered a lot of extra information. They did a great job with the story, way more than than, uh, <laughs> than, the, than the website of, of the Guardian, which isn't even... I mean, arguably, the Guardian's a British-based paper. You're supposed to be a U.S. paper, an American paper, to win the, the Pulitzer, and apparently what they did is they said, well, they, they published it on the website, which is an American website. The, the problem with all of this is you take this dirty material, this illegal material, and you launder it through journalists and then you turn the power over to the journalists to decide what to put out and how to put it out and that is really really troubling but Denise you know when, when
1: we when we look at this I mean we had uh, Lewis Clark from uh, the uh, General Accountability uh, Organization who, who basically talked about the fact that look Edward Snowden is in fact a whistleblower he was talking about illegal activities but it, 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 it's odd to me that a contractor with a, with a high-level security clearance, in this case a top-secret uh, compartmentalized clearance, this guy basically took top-secret classified information and went and, whether you call it a whistleblower or divulged in violation of the national security, that's got to be a red
4: flag to those inside government. Well, it's a red flag to those inside government, but this was the biggest story of the year. So for me, it it wasn't a surprise that uh, The Washington Post and The Guardian got the Pulitzer. This is the story that people spent the entire year talking about and still has some significant ramifications right now with our relationship with Germany and other countries that have now come to recognize that maybe we were doing some things that gained us additional information that these countries didn't expect us to have. So I, I, I think the Pulitzer Committee was sending a signal thing, that this was a big event, and we recognized how big this was, not only here in the United States, but elsewhere.
1: But Denise, I mean, doesn't it almost invite others that might have access to security clearance that, that may be even more security sensitive, that might be even uh, more detrimental to national security here in the U.S. and abroad in our interests, to, hey, look, I don't like what's going on. I'm just going to go ahead and give it to a journalist.
4: No, I, I don't think that's going to invite other people to share this type of information. Snowden will never be allowed to set foot in the United States again, and if he does, he's probably going to jail for the rest of his life. I mean, that, That's a calculation that people are going to have to go through and say, if I release this type of information, I'm going to go to jail. So not a lot of people are going to willingly say, I want to go to jail.
1: Bob Hines, let me ask you. I mean, does this, I mean, as a vice president at NBC, would you encourage your journalists? I mean, Denise is right. This is a story that we've talked about for now over a year. And it has changed and directly affected national policy, (laughs) national security and intelligence gathering capabilities and operations. In that aspect, did the Washington Post and the
3: Guardian do their job? Well, once the material was out, I think they did a... I don't know about the Guardian so much, but the Post, as Alan said, were all over the story. They covered it from a million different angles and had about, you know, as he said, many, many people on it, and they spent a great deal of time on it. But it wasn't much original reporting. I mean, original information, so to speak. And, you know, that's the only thing I... That's the reason I I was surprised that it was something that became the Pulitzer that they get would you would quick. you encourage your journalists to do what the washington post did in light of what we know now well if you mean would we would we have would nbc have encouraged them to uh to uh you know do all they could do to, to get a hold of the material and make it public i suspect yes they would have Alan moore so so here's
5: the problem we have national secrets here we have many, many, many national secrets here, and we've turned them over to a news organization. The Washington Post has been around a long time. They're, they're pretty careful and pretty responsible, even though they're only kind of a shadow of their former self in quality and people and all the rest of it, but they take because they're D.C.-based and, and, and have a long history here, they're pretty careful about talking to people in government. Here's what we've got. Here's what we're going to publish. We're telling you in advance and to give you a, a chance to say to, to explain why that's going to put lives in danger, for example. And they hold off some stuff. They put other things out there. The problem, you know, having said that, does that, then do they get a free pass? No, but at least they've got a lot of experience. A lot of experience that The Guardian didn't have, and this guy Greenwald, who, as far as I remember, wasn't even a real <laughs> journalist, um, but, but but what you do is you take, and, and Denise mentioned Germany. Why are the Germans so upset? Because we were tapping Angela Merkel's cell phone. Now, I have no idea why, why we thought that she would be saying all these kinds of things, driving around in a car or walking from place to place on her cell phone, thinking maybe other people could catch the, the cell phone, too. Who knows? But... It was stupid for us to do it it was also really stupid for that to be released I don't know how that happened when you've got the, the Guardian and the post both with the same information it's sort of like they're going back and forth so if, you know if the post is trying to be responsible talk to the Pentagon talk to NSC talk to the White House and all of a sudden the Guardian is going to just go ahead because why' do, what do they care they're guys in Brazil and they're in Britain. Um, well, then the Post has got to play catch-up. It, 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 it was a crazy, wacky business. Let, and we, let's talk we, about Greenwald
1: for a second, though. You, Alan, you brought up Greenwald a couple of times. I mean, Greenwald, arguably a journalist or not, uh, Greenwald was part of the coverage and a key figure. But the problem I have with the Perlitzer Committee is they seem to have given the prize to the Guardian U.S. web edition for their coverage of Snowden. At a time where Greenwald did something that many journalists consider a taboo, which is he made himself part of the story. Bob Hines, that to me kind of makes me scratch my head as to what the jury was thinking as far as was that journalistically credible? I mean, every time we turn around, he's
3: on CNN, he's on Fox. Well, as Alan said, I'm not sure you would... The day before all this broke, and I, I don't think you, a lot of people thought he was actually a, a true journalist profession. I mean, it, it's it, it's a whole bunch. There's a whole bunch of funny people running around and getting a hold of the stuff. Doesn't make a journalist because doesn't make them a journalist just because they got the material. Right, but let, I mean, let's be and also let's be clear. Greenwald did not win a Pulitzer. It was no. a Guardian
1: U.S. edition. It was the total website edition of the, no. of, of the uh, Guardian that won. But he was still a key figure in that. Uh, Denise Krep, um you know, we we've talked about this whistleblower versus traitor argument uh, with several times on the show. Uh, does this validate the fact that Edward Stone was in fact a, a a whistleblower?
4: I think it validates to some that he was a whistleblower, but I I, I don't think that it validates to everybody. That it was a whistleblower. I think there are a lot of people here in the United States that believe that he's a traitor, it, it, and it's very difficult. It's very difficult to say what he is because you can look at this story from several different perspectives. And from one perspective, yes, he let you know go a lot of U.S. secrets. On the other hand, some of the information that he let go, should we have been tapping somebody else's phone? Should we have been tapping the you know, Angela Merkel's phone? Personally, I don't think so. I I, I don't think that sends the best message to our allies, and Germany is our allies, that we trust them. It's a a complicated story, so it's not very black and white.
5: Alan Moore. Well, uh, there's a lot of stuff that that, that we shouldn't have been doing. I don't think there's any question about that. Uh, Interestingly, on the great big question of gathering information on... Phone conversations uh, that 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 are either either start or end in America, um, uh, where we have, we, we, <laughs> for a while there, we were collecting, and I think we still are, frankly, uh, the in, information on every single phone call: what phone number gets called, what phone number makes a call, what time, what day of the week, what time of day, and how long the call lasted. We don't we don't collect the content. That was, not because we wouldn't want it it's just to be crazily completely impossible the whole point of all of this is when we find somebody in uh, in uh, Tunisia for example who's uh, uh, making some phone calls and we have reason to believe that they're terrorists and we discover that they're talking that they're making phone calls to some uh, handful of numbers in America we can go look at those look at those people so we're collecting Billions and billions and billions of information in the hope that there may be a handful of pieces of information we might want. Is that a good idea? Who the heck knows? We are still doing it. The president is trying to figure out a way to continue to do it. And and what he has said is, we're not going to keep collecting it centrally. We're going to require the phone companies to keep it so that when we want it, we can go get them to do it. And we're going to have to pay them to do it because they're going to say, we're not doing that that's ridiculously expensive. We don't have the capacity for all of that. Well, so the biggest piece of news in all of this is that we're going to continue to do what people uh, are 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 so excited about and don't totally understand. We, uh, Al, we're we're talking about the Pulitzer going right. to the Post and the and the, the Guardian. Guardian for
1: well, let me ask. Uh, let me ask. You know, straight from his VIP position in a very long line at the House <laughs> Post Office, the former congressman himself, Al Swift, joining us. Al, you're also an Emmy-winning uh, an Emmy-winning broadcaster-journalist yourself. That
2: didn't help me on the hill at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh,
1: but, or here, either. Or, or, yeah, I does not give any credibility
2: here, either, but that's beside the point. But
1: as, Emmy, you know, as, as somebody who knew Ben Bradley, as somebody who, who came from a journalistic background, uh, Al, it, it, it seems to me like... I've heard people talk about the fact that had Ben Bradley been alive had uh, had, uh, Catherine Graham been alive they would have been all over it and then some Uh, although there are some that also say that Ben Bradley also knew the, the, the fine line of divulging national secrets versus getting a scoop on a story is this something that will down the road promote journalism and journalists all around to go out there and find these National security stories in divulge them. Well, wish
2: that all senior editors of all publications were as intelligent and as balanced as Ben Bradlee. Uh, people didn't always agree with him. Uh, conservatives thought he was too liberal, uh, which is perfectly and hard. liberals
1: thought he was too conservative.
2: Sometimes he thought he was too conservative, uh, but he was very responsible, and I and looked at those opportunities where he was asked this question. Right. You know, and he had always very solid, good reasons for why he made the decision he did. He didn't always agree with those either, but he had rationale, and it wasn't just a public's right to know, screw you, uh, kind of a a response. So I, and, and Catherine Graham had guts the combination was dynamite, and uh, they, they might well have uh, handled this uh, more aggressively.
1: Bob Hines, you also knew Ben Bradley in your time here in Washington.
2: Incidentally, I didn't know Ben Bradley. Uh, that, oh, I
1: thought you knew oh, See, you oh, talked about Ben Bradley a couple of yeah. times there. And see, look, well, I, I, you're correcting your own facts. That's awesome. <laughs> Al may be old, but he's
5: not that old. Oh, okay.
1: <laughs> Bob, you also had interactions with, Bob, with yeah. Bill Bradley uh, back in the day. Uh, Bradley, some are saying today that this is our modern-day Watergate for the Washington Post.
3: In, in, in some ways it is. Let's put it this way. When you get the kind of information that the Post got, there's no way that they're not going to take a real hard look at it and say, can we, how can we use this? Because they're not just going to put, they're not just going to say fold it up and put it away and lock it away in a closet. They can't do that. They're journalists, and they're going to do something with it. I mean, what you, that's just the way the but, journalism works. But no, let,
1: let, let me bring up this question though, Bob. When we talk about this, you know, when we do put it in the pro, in the perspective of this is a modern day Watergate for the Washington Post, mm-hmm. they won a Pulitzer Prize for their coverage of Watergate. Right. Uh, ben Bradley and Catherine Graham were very much instrumental in promoting and getting that story to the front page. From Woodward and Bernstein, uh, it, when you look at this right now, Watergate didn't involve national security; it was no. catching the president in a no. lie. This
3: involved national security. Is there a difference? Of course, there's a difference. There's a difference in in impact more than anything else. I mean, so so so, the, so President Nixon was, you know, and his team trying to get reelected were were doing things they shouldn't be doing. Big blank and deal. As far as the French or the Germans or the Italians or anybody else cares about, it, it important for it was important to the United States. It, 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 it wasn't important around the world in that sense. It may have it may have weakened the president. Certainly it did, and it may have held the United States up to uh, you know, but probably a bunch of Italians and French would say, yeah, they're just like us. But the fact of the matter is, the reality is, they're very different issues. One, a domestic issue completely and the other one an international disaster for the united states all over the world with our friends who are just suddenly discovering that everything they're talking about is being given given to the united states uh because they're taking they're stealing telephone messages congressman now
2: how naive can they be they're doing it to us sure what what on earth makes them think we're not doing it to them this is this has been going on for i, I, I was told that during the second world war the Germans who were based in Vienna would play golf on Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Saturdays, and the Allies would play it on Mondays, Wednesdays, and so forth. You know, everybody in town was a spy. Everybody was spying on everybody else, and everybody knew it. And to come in and say, I'm shocked. I'm shocked to no, know there's spying going on here. is ridiculous. Well,
1: Alan Moore, this Congressman Al brings up a very valid point. Was this basically media hyped up to generate their own news cycle?
5: Well, look, um, the the scope of what was go- what was going on, which was made possible by significant changes in technology that simply didn't exist in the past. Um, uh, is is uh, awe-inspiring in its way, just because it because it is so massive. Um, but I, I think, you know, the poets are not, notwithstanding, they, this was a very big story. It's still playing out. There's still, you know, we've got we've got people at the Post and people at the Guardian playing god, deciding what to put out, whether somebody's going to get hurt. And the team at the Washington—I don't—I'm not that comfortable with having a team. Now it's the second team, if you will, at the Washington Post make those decisions. And I'm really not comfortable with this sort of group, the, the the ragtag group at the Guardian and this documentary filmmaker who was the original conduit. So Pulitzer, fine, it's done, and it's not that big a surprise. As as Denise said, what what I think is the bigger question is what rules should govern the behavior of journalists who uncover national secrets that are illegal to, to make public? And that question doesn't go away. There are so many news sources now out there in the world of cable TV and the Internet um, and, and social, social media that the ability to control information is harder and harder to do the the the, the newspapers the with the journalists of the world whether the real ones or self self-named ones all want some kind of protection oh my god first amendment we got to be able to say what we what we want to do and i just think that 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 we have got to come back in the modern world and and look hard and say what are we willing to tolerate um, and and what are the uh, where do we draw the line on what we what's permissible in terms of divulging secrets and and, and what is it and what the ground rules really are for for journalists? Denise Crabb.
4: I agree with Alan. I mean, you've got a lot of different sources, but I, I just want to remind folks that back in 19 you know 17 when Pulitzer you know the prize was first given out, there were a lot of complaints about journalism back then. I mean, you had know, complaints being called yellow journalism, and, and did the journalists start the war between the United States and Cuba? I mean, the, the statements we're making about journalists today have been made in the past for over you know, 100 years. We're in changing times. The journalists we have now are different than we had 100 years ago, but we're going to have to learn to adapt to what, he, what we're seeing. Not, and well, as part well, of that adaptation is, is how we do this.
1: But Denise, we also talk about a time you
4: know we're in different,
1: a whole different world when it comes to journalism. We have umpteen different agencies with 24-hour news channels. They're working a 24-hour news cycle. We have the internet. We have bloggers. We have journalists that may not really be journalists or members of the press. Uh, you know, we go back and I go and I keep using this one statement from one of my favorite films, *An American President*, where. Martin Sheen looks at uh, Michael Douglas and says, "You know, if you know if if uh, FDR had run for president today, he never we never elect a president in a wheelchair. Back then, we had a certain honor amongst thieves. Al Congressman Al, you were part of that old school journalism community. It, it just seems then that there was a, an understanding." that we didn't cross certain lines as far as national security divulging national secrets that seems to be gone now
2: there there was some <clears throat> but uh, this debate has gone on as long as uh, as long as we've had a free press and will go on as long as we have a free press uh, drawing the line of of, of what a free press can do is is something that I think we should have more debate in this I, I really get upset with both politicians and journalists who say it's the public interest we, when well, it's their own self-interest that drives them to go as far as they, uh, they go? Uh,
1: around the horn, we got a we got a uh, email question from a listener. Uh, actually, we've got two. One is uh, one person's interested that if we had the opportunity to interview Edward Snowden, as members of the, of the press that some say we are, uh, what would you ask him? Well, would you would you interview him, Congressman Al?
2: Well, yeah, I would interview. Him you know, you'd interview sure. anybody. you interview Stalin if you get the chance. Uh, what would I ask him? That I would, I would spend a lot yeah. of time thinking that through. You'd only get so much out of him to begin with, and you'd need to ask the right questions. You could spend an awful lot of time asking privileged those questions. And, uh,
3: Bob Lines? Well, I suppose if I had, if I was talking to the gentleman... I think the first question I would ask him, why did you feel you had to do it? Interesting
5: question. Alan Moore? Yeah, I have a couple of questions. I I would, first of all, want to know what he might do differently now, because he has taken so much flack, I think justifiably so, for giving the stuff over, out of his own control and then getting out of the country, and now he's sort of stuck out of the country. I think, myself, there are ways that he could have done this, probably dealing with a, a national politician to get this information out there and make him somebody who could still stay here at home and not and not be so hated. So that, that one question, what would he do differently, and, and would he in that regard have done something differently? Two, three, Does it, does it trouble him? that these people that he didn't even know before and were beyond his control now have control over all this information, um, and did he give up too much? Right. Uh, Dean
4: crap I'd ask him what his biggest surprise has been in the past year. I mean, what were his expectations when he released this information? Were these expectations met? And, and what hasn't been met in the past year that he thought would, would happen? happened?
1: And interesting. And the other question we have, real quickly, with the last uh, minute here in the segment, we've kind of gone over a little bit, is uh, listener wants to know: do, do we, as backroom politics, do we break that story if we have it? Comes from now. Uh
2: I would not think that this little group would break the story. First of all, we're not. There. But if we,
1: but if we had the capability, I mean, let, let's be honest. We we broke one story once before that had national significance. That was the announcement before anybody else had it. Of, uh, of Leon Panetta going over to Secretary of Defense and General Petraeus coming up as DCI. We've done it before. We could possibly do it again. Would we have done it if we had the, uh, uh, the information? I doubt it. Bob Hines?
3: I don't think I would have wanted to be a part to putting that material out.
5: Alan Moore? We would not have. We don't have the capability to go into the government and say well, what have we got here? What kind of damage might occur? We'd have to do all of that sort of due diligence that the Post did, that the Guardian claims it did, and we, and, and that would, and suddenly your little narrow window of opportunity disappears. Yes. All
2: right, well, I'm going to let that be the last word, well, 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 Congressman. Now, real you, quick, you, unless you talked about this before I got here, I, I think it would be very interesting to note that this was under a new owner of the Washington Post. And I would love to know how deeply he was involved in in this.
5: You're way. talking
1: about Jeff Bezos of Amazon.
5: Right. Yeah. No, but this all happened, this before happened before Jeff Bezos. He over. Yeah. He's there now to yeah. bask in, in, the, in the glory. The glory. It, it, it hit the paper before him. <laughs> before Jeff yeah. well, yes. Yeah. yes. You're yes. right. I'm yes. sorry that's for
2: right. up no, that's power. right.
1: Hey, we're, going to take, we're, we're running behind a little bit. We're going to take a quick two-minute break. When we come back, we're going to talk about Secretary Sebelius' resignation and how it affects the Obama administration, healthcare.gov, and Obamacare as a whole. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelly's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. You know, you hear us talk about Shelly's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on backroom politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's back room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250, from cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners. Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelly's can make combinations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelly's Back Room, Go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelly's Backroom, the place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics on Vlog Talk Radio. Uh, we're talking real quickly about uh, the resignation of Secretary Kathleen Sebelius as the Secretary of Health and Human Services. Last Thursday, she announced her resignation. Uh, some saw it as a surprise departure. Others that I've talked to inside the administration said they were just waiting for this. Uh, and as such, the president has already nominated the uh, acting director of the Office of Management and Budget to be the new Secretary of Health and Human Services. Let's talk about Kathleen Sebelius. Uh, Bob Hines, Kathy Sebelius was largely well regarded prior to the fiasco with healthcare.gov and Obamacare's release with... Uh, Was she a political liability to the administration, and and she may have seen this?
3: She was the... Well, it ain't her fault. The law, as written, is a mess. I think everybody understands that and understands why it happened that way. But the fact of the matter is, she was stuck with a very difficult piece of legislation, which was poorly drafted, poorly done, and... You, you know, you can't fix all that stuff until you, so you, so you see the problems developing, and it overwhelmed everything. The problem for her was, how do I get this thing cleaned up as well as she did? She And I think, quite frankly, the, the work that was done in the last six months, or six, six, six or eight months, it, it, was, it was a substantial improvement of the bill. And, you know, the, look, how many times did the president uh, say... I am the President, and I've decided that I don't like this section of the bill, so I'm going to change it so I identify an administrative fiat. Things like that had to be done, and it's not it has nothing to do with Sibelius or his people or her people. In the Department, it has to do with the fact that the legislation was poorly drafted, quickly done, and because it was that way, when the real world got to dealing with it, the insurance industries and everybody in the state governments, Everybody saw the problems and brought them up, and there were just all those problems there. And she was the one who everybody said wanted to do it right.
1: Hey, Denise, let me ask you the question: Was was she sacrificed by the administration?
3: Was it was she
1: unfairly targeted?
4: Yes, I, I think she was unfairly targeted. I mean, as Bob just said she got saddled with a very unfortunate piece of legislation that a lot of people did not like. And somebody's head needed to roll based off of the delays and the problems associated with it. I mean, that was a political calculation. And unfortunately, I think she was sacrificed. And it is unfortunate because there's no one person that could be in charge of this type of program. I mean, it impacted many different departments. And for her to have to be responsible for every one of those is just you can't do that to one person, especially when she can't control how everybody else in other departments acts. It's just the not fair to
1: her. Alan Moore is giving me his patented Alan Moore smirk as we're talking here. Alan Moore?
5: Poor Secretary Sibelius. She had only three and a half years to get this done. She had enormous. She had tens of millions that turned into hundreds of millions of dollars of resources. Was she the one who should be sitting in a room making sure it worked? No, of course not. But she had incredible resources. This thing at the outset, though, was pulled from her, and it was, and it was overseen in the White House by some very smart, very well-intentioned policy types who did not have a clue or an ounce of experience in putting something uh, of this nature together the people at CMS, the Center for Medicaid and Medicare Services, who had the day-to-day responsibility were overwhelmed. Nobody could figure out how to how to pass the word up the chain. Sebelius was in charge. She was given this mandate, and she had a duty to... Be on top of what was going on and and let the president know in a timely way prior to October 1st of last year, we're not ready. And and back then that week, we said, she cannot last. She cannot last. Hold on a second.
4: All right, Denise Krupp first. Go ahead. First of all, I've it out with multiple different agencies, and it's, it's not fun, it's nasty, and they can be downright obnoxious. So I, I'm not going to say that, you know, sit here and say, poor Secretary Sebelius. You're right. She was put in a position, and I can tell you, her life must have been a hell because people don't play fair in the administration, and you know that, Alan. You were a Republican appointee, just like I was a Democrat appointee. I mean, it can be worse inside the administration than it can be outside of the administration,
6: but but but
1: Denise, let's also be honest, and I, I can't believe I'm going to do this as a, as a moderate Republican, I still shocked I'm going to ask this question, but to me it seems like that Kathleen Sebelius, the Secretary of HHS, got dealt a bad hand of cards, and even with all of her political prowess, even with all of her abilities, she still seemed to be directed by the White House and the administration to put forward. I mean, we're just talking about healthcare.gov and Obamacare. We haven't even talked about the fiascos of the religious organizations and birth control. She was put on the front line of that, and she took hits for that. It seems like the administration didn't do a good job of managing the issue rather than shoving it in her face. Is that
4: accurate? that's what it looks like to me i mean i can't tell you how many times the national security staff told us what we were supposed to say and we would look at them and say are you kidding me we'll get slaughtered for it. And their responses we're telling you what to say and i'm thinking hey you're not even a political appointee and you're putting us on the block to get our heads knocked off and d you don't even know what you're talking about so i'd love to see some national security staffers also take the hit for this one congressman Al.
2: well let me approach this from a little bit different standpoint <coughs> First of all, it is not at all unusual for a cabinet officer to leave after five years. That happens regularly without... True, true. Secondly, it has got to have been a very tough five years on her, and the fact that she may well have wanted out, and the fact that that coincided well with the political needs of the administration... Uh, I think that we can forget some of the conspiracy theories wrapped about this. Was she thrown out? I doubt it. I think uh, there was discussions and and the the idea came up and she grabbed it.
1: Congressman, now let me ask this question, though. It, It seems to me that it was a little disingenuous by the Obama administration and by the president to do this massive Rose Garden victory lap of how great Obamacare was and then turn around and say, okay, literally less than five days after the victory lap, she's, she's out.
2: And you're shocked
5: by that. I, I'm a, I'm a little shocked by that.
1: Are Alan Moore first and Bob Hines? Alan Moore. Well, w- we don't
5: know precisely what happened uh, in that, in, in that five-day period. And what she said on the weekend was, look, this I I chose the time. It was time. As Al said, people do tire out, and they do leave. And we've had people who've already gotten tired and left. The problem in this case was after the disaster that the, that that became the rollout, and the all-hands-on-deck, multiple scramble, tens of millions of dollars to redo the the, the software that sh- should never have gotten to that point in the first place. You had people all over the Congress and elsewhere saying, somebody has to pay, she's going to be the one because she's the cabinet-level member in charge. And no president likes to be pressured to get rid of somebody, but she was clear she clearly was not on top of this and for them to be surprised at the launch was unforgivable. I don't expect her to write code and do software, but for her to be in charge of something this big and not to have a clue of how bad it was, that alone disqualifies her from keeping the job. But she stayed on at it wasn't like there was somebody standing right behind her who could step in and, and take over. She's not incompetent by any stretch. It's just that somebody had to pay. Now, the details we're going to have to read about in books down the road unless somebody talks to, unless Edward Snowden's figured it out and passes it <laughs> on <laughs> to the
0: post and to Glenn
5: Greenwald.
3: Bob Hines? Well, here you go. <laughs> They got they got their quote seven million people signed up whether they're paying their bills or not their their insurance I don't know but the fact of the matter is once they got their number she could act she could say and the president could give her a pat on the back and say yeah we've got it all done and it's a nice time to go and you know she could go out at least on the, she could say I did my job as best I could and I got it. I got I got it to the number we asked for so you know. You can say it's a success,
1: but now with with Sylvia Burwell, who was the acting, who or still is actually the acting director. She's not acting. She she is is the director. I'm sorry, I kept saying confirmed
5: director of OMB. I I apologize. Confirmed unanimously, not that long ago. Right. Good luck this time.
1: Well, that that, that's what I want to bring up is, is 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 Sylvia Burwell, who. A lot of people I've talked to in, in Congress and in the administration has tremendous street credibility. She's well-liked, and what I've heard out of the administration is that they are putting her up, because of her successes at OMB, to take over what some are seeing now is a fractured, damaged good in HHS. Is she really walking into a fire pit right now, and can she fix it?
2: Al, Al Swift? She, 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 she is walking into a fire pit which the Republicans will stoke. She is walking into a fire pit in which the Democrats are going to be pouring water. Uh, she probably is going to be able to handle it uh, because I think uh, I think the case on either side is a little hard to make. Uh, for example, I, I'm, I know Bob is absolutely convinced that Obamacare is a disaster from the beginning. He's expressed that in many ways uh, and logical ways here on the program. I don't agree with that. I think there's a very good chance that this will turn out just fine in the end. Uh, But in the meantime, it's going to be a huge political issue, and having somebody who can handle that pressure uh, is going to be important.
3: Bob Hines? Well, that's the important thing, because there are going to be more problems. Uh, Obviously, they don't have enough young people who have signed up. And they needed 40%, according to their own numbers. It's probably closer to 25 to 30, somewhere in there. It was 24 the last time I saw a number. So the fact of the matter is there are going to be more problems. She's a very talented lady. Uh, But this bill is, is going to, it's, you know... I think eventually, you know, you know, he's got another two, they got another couple of years to, as long as the president's in, in, in office, to continue to do what they've been doing for the last several years, and that is every once in a while, by administrative fiat, fixing what they didn't fix to begin with. And they're going to keep doing that, and I expect it's going to continue to be an issue politically because there are so many things in the bill that don't work in the real world and as long as they can continue to fix them the bill is going to end the law eventually will be probably pretty well an efficient job but right now it's a, it's a work in progress but two and a half years after it was passed. But Denise
1: you know it, it seems to me like the Environment Administration literally is using OMB as some sort of band-aid bullpen for HHS You know president brought in Jeff Seitz, uh, who was also former OMB, uh, to head the team uh, to fix healthcare.gov. Phil Shalero, uh, who was a legislative liaison, Phil Shalero came in, also was uh, instrumental in OMB. He came in and also was looking at this. And now you got Burwell. Is, is, is management and budget the right mentality that you need to fix the larger scale HHS?
4: Absolutely, I, I think it's a very smart choice uh, to make because OMB is going to understand everybody's equities. So it's not just HHS; it'll be Treasury, it'll be Veterans Affairs. There are a lot of different equities that are in play here relating to Obamacare, and by bringing in people who understand those equities and who already have relationships with the other departments, those relationships will help them implement this at a hopefully um, at a better pace and one that is. A little
5: bit more organized. Alan Moore, do you agree? Well, it, it, it seems to me that it, it's not about the, the OMB position. Um, it's about who the person is. Uh, if, if you are running OMB, you've got a very, very, very big job in government. Some would argue it's, it's right up there in, in one of the top four or five cabinet posts, and might rank it above HHS even though the HHS HHS empire is so is so big and broad I'm not I don't mean to put that agency down at all it's just that OMB is at the center of things relating to to, to where the how much money gets spent on different, uh, on, on, on different aspects of government. She, Sylvia Matthews Burwell, was a deputy director of OMB back in the Clinton administration. Then she spent about eight or nine years with the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Then she went over to run the family foundation of the Walton family, the Walmart fortune. She's done a lot of impressive stuff. So when she came just last year to OMB, she'd been away from government for a long time, but was well thought of. She was confirmed unanimously. This time, they, they can't hang uh, Obamacare on her, but they're going to take a pound of, they're going to extract a pound of flesh in her hearings. And she'll, she's a smart woman, and she's already obviously off to a head start, <coughs> knowing quite a bit about it. My, my, so she's a perfectly good choice. I feel badly for OMB that they've got they've got to get another new person. And that's in some that, that might even be more controversial than the Matthew than than, than the in Burwell, Burwell appointment, uh, to appointment to HHS because there's a little bit of a we wanted Sibelius to be gone she's gone. We like this person, uh, John McCain, and others have already said, "I intend to support her. I know her i I have great respect for her that doesn't mean it'll just be by acclamation <laughs> she will have to come and, and 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 get squeezed a little bit, but they can't they can't challenge her for bad judgment on on Obamacare. she's going to be there to make sure that the rollout continues to to work and improve, and she has a lot of other responsibilities in that job besides public.
1: Around the horn before we go to break here, real quick, uh, Congressman Al, I'll start with you. Is Kathleen Sebelius? Is her legacy? Is, is it a legacy of politically damaged goods? Can she come back from this?
2: Uh, uh, she could uh, in the future. <coughs> in the future, uh, depending on uh, what she tried to come back as, I think it should be. Is her political
1: career done? Uh,
2: it, it would be hard. It would be very, very hard. But, but done. Uh, she, she walked into this situation with an awful lot of respect. And uh, could she reclaim that? I wouldn't want to say a- absolutely no. Bob Hines
1: is s- Sebelius Damaged Goods, politically. Well,
3: she's, she's damaged just because she was in the seat that was exploding all over the place. But it's... And I mean, it was, we're
1: talking about a very, very popular governor out uh, of Kansas. She a good job.
3: And she's, she's, she's got, got a lot of talent. She's, got a, she's smart. Uh, she's, uh, she's not young. She may not want any more political activity, you know, jobs. But right. the fact of the matter is, you know, she, she, she was dealt a real bad hand to begin with, and it wasn't her fault. Right. Denise Krapp?
4: I don't think she's done. No, I, I, she was dealt an awful hand, but there are a lot of things that people can learn from her. And it's, I'm betting that she goes out and she starts talking with different groups about lessons learned uh, vis-a-vis the health care, but also vis-a-vis how to be a strong female in the political uh, environment. And, and that's going to be one of the best benefits that she can give to the new generation of leaders.
5: Alan Moore? Well, she was dealt a bad hand, and she didn't play it very well. So... Uh, she is damaged goods. Her future? Who knows? In this, you know, in, in this, she'll become a board member. She'll become a board member of Blue Cross Blue I'm, Shield. I think Denise <laughs> is onto something, though. About what does she does she really want to get back into politics to do what? I don't think she wants to go back and run for office. And she she's had a very senior cabinet post. She's not going to get one of the others. She's not going to move up to Treasury or State or become Attorney General. So. Each Does she run for problems? Senate at of Kansas? I don't think so. No. You know, people who wants to go be a member of the Senate after you've been a governor and a cabinet member and at, at, at her at, at her stage, she's probably going to go become a university president, a foundation president, make a lot yeah. more money, have a lot more relaxation, go. go around, write her book, give speeches, and, right. and be happy, and be happy, and sleep better, sleep better at night. There we go. All right, uh, we're
1: going to take a break. When we come back. We've got a very special guest. He is the New York Times best-selling author of Rawhide Down, the definitive account of the Reagan assassination attempt back in the 1980s. And he is the Bloomberg justice correspondent. Dell Weaver will join us in the next hour. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We're going to order our drinks, cut our cigars. It's happy hour here at Backroom Politics. Stay with us. We'll be back in four minutes. Happy Hour on Backroom Politics is sponsored by Shelly's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., America's premier cigar tavern. Stay with us as the roundtable continues after we order our drinks, order our cigars, and get ready for the second hour of backroom politics. Stay with us. We'll be back in two minutes. live in Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital. This is the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live on Block Talk Radio. Joining us now uh, to talk about his best-selling book, he is New York Times' best-selling author and Bloomberg Media's journalist for justice and uh, and public safety issues. He is the author and journalist, Del Weaver. Del, how are you doing? Good, how are you doing? Ah, thanks, for ha- thanks for coming on, first of all. Oh, sure. Uh, we're here to talk about uh, your book, Rahai Dem, which is in large part talking to some folks that have read the book, the pre, the preeminent book on the entire story about the assassination attempt on uh, President Reagan outside the Washington Hilton back in 1982. Uh, first of all, you know, you're know you a journalist at Bloomberg. What compelled you to write this book? All
6: right, well, it actually starts, um, I was at the Washington Post at the time. I uh-huh. was at the Post for 10 years. And um, I was covering the federal courts. A little closer. Um, I was covering the federal courts, and Hinkley. We all know John Hinkley,
0: mm-hmm.
6: on March 30th, 1981, shot President Ronald Reagan outside the Washington Hilton. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity. Um, then he gets put in Saint Elizabeth Hospital ever since. But Which is now DHS headquarters, ironically. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> <and, laughs> the insanity! Um, and so he uh, is over there, but he gets. Uh, he wants visits. He wants to get out of this hospital. The, his Lawyers are petitioning the court to give him more freedom from the hospital. And I am covering these hearings in federal court. And I'm like 15 feet from this guy. And he shows, it was so eerie, you're 15 feet, and at the moment at that time, I thought, I'm 15 feet away from a guy I thought changed history, or almost changed history. I was 15 feet away from a guy I thought almost changed history, and it was so bizarre, this hearing. They were talking about his sex life, the girlfriends he had, all this interesting stuff they showed no emotion. It was like someone had taken a mask of his sleeping face the night before and he put it on. It was just flat effect and it just stuck with me. I'm like, that's so interesting. I'm so close. Then about a month later, I get a call. I get summoned to the FBI Washington field office. The director of the office, Joe Persiccini, summons me. We need to talk right now. We need you to stop working on this investigative story you're doing about a totally unrelated matter D.C., Ethiopian taxi cab drivers bribing D.C. officials, right? We need you to do it. I heard about it. Type three right. wiretaps. I can't write this story. I come over. We're sitting at his conference table. And he's like, don't do this story. You're going to wreck our case. You're going to mess it up. I'm like, okay, okay, I get it. I'll let you go with the case. I won't report it anymore, but we talk about it. And, um, and, uh, we t- we, and I agree not to kind of write about it right now. He goes, okay. He gets up from the conference table. And, and partly, I wasn't interested in the story, because let's be honest, in D.C., you know, corruption, man bites dog, dog bites man. Right. Ethiopian taxi cab drivers bribing D.C. officials is kind of like a dog bites man kind of story. Right. right. So it's not a surprise. <laughs> and so he gets up from the conference table, goes over to his desk. I hear him rummage through a drawer, and he comes over. And he slaps something heavy in my hand. And I look down, it's a gun. I go, holy, you really don't want me to write this story, do you? And he goes, that's Hinckley's gun. I'm like,
0: what's John really? Hinckley? Yes. Yeah, I was cool. like,
6: what's John That's Hinckley's cool. gun doing in your desk drawer? It shouldn't be in a museum? I mean you can't in DC, for your listeners, not in DC. Yeah. You walk out the Shelley's, you're gonna run into a museum. Right. Okay? They're, how right. are you gonna find a museum for this? Right. And so it got me really curious. I went to the library to try to find a book on this event. Now I'm really curious. I'm not the brightest bulb, but I'm not as dumb as a rock. And I've now had two like moments in time with this fantastically interesting tale and I And I I wanted to explore more. Go to the library, not a single book on the day. So then I call the guy on the book jacket, this dude right here, Jerry Parr. Right. He's an agent who I will discover saved Reagan's life not only once on March 30th, 1989, but twice. Twice. So I go to interview Jerry Parr. Right. Jerry Parr, I didn't think he'd talk to me. Secret Service, tight-lipped. Right. Right. Oh, my God, you could not get Jerry Parr to stop talking. (laughs) 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 by the end, I knew I had a great book. Okay, And sometimes I think it helps if I set the scene to March 30th, 1981, a day much like today in Washington, dreary, cloudy, rainy, quartz, rainy, right, to set up why I think this day not only was as significant to history as if the assassination attempt had actually gone, had actually worked, but also to talk about how it transformed Reagan's presidency and catapulted it forward. It recalibrated everything.
1: So let, let's go back to that day. Um President Reagan is giving an address at the Washington Hilton. Yes. It was supposed to be just a rudimentary movement of his Secret Service co- code name at the time was Rawhide. Uh, it was supposed to be a rudimentary movement for Rawhide from the Washington Hilton back to uh, the White House. And there had not been any indication that there was going to be an intent on the President's life. Uh, it, 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 at some point, it happened so instantaneously what did you discover in writing the book as to just, I mean, we're, we're going to get into the larger chaos, but the chaos there on the scene as it happened, what did you
0: find?
6: Right. Well, so this is March 30th, 1981. The president, as you said, is delivering this kind of routine address to the AFL-CIO. Mm-hmm. He's delivering this address. It's 2.27 p.m. He's walking out of the hotel. Now, we've all seen the Washington Hilton Hotel at this table. Right. People now know it's a really neat hotel built in the 1950s and 60s, and it was, they designed it On the premise, they wanted the president to come to help them fill their majestic ballroom. Right. So they put a special entrance on the side of the hotel called the VIP entrance just for the president, but they did not consult the Secret Service on the design of the driveway leading to that entrance. Right. It was too narrow for the 13,000-pound limousine known as stationery. Right. So they dropped the president off. They can't leave the limousine there for a bunch of reasons. They have to back it up, point it out towards the T Street, so the president, when he leaves the hotel, he's dropped off. when he's dropped off, he's dropped up at the door. But when he leaves the hotel through the VIP entrance, he has to walk out the driveway 35 feet to the door of the limousine. Because they couldn't leave it in front, otherwise we would get caught in the curb, caught in crossfire. This was the compromise they made for security. He walks out of the hotel, 2.27 p.m. He's heading towards the limousine. He doesn't know that 15 feet from him, behind a rope line, unsecured rope line, no magnetometers, is John W. Hinckley Jr. John W. Hinckley Jr. was on his way transiting from Los Angeles, where he made one last failed attempt to be a songwriter, not a very good one, right. across the country through D.C., on his way to New Haven, Connecticut, where he wanted to kill the object of his obsession, Jodie Foster. Mm-hmm. He was obsessed with this woman since 1976 thinking of the movie Taxi Driver. Mm-hmm. He wakes up that morning. He had stopped President Carter before. He thought killing President Carter in October 1980 would endear him to Jodie Foster. He wants the an event with uh, Carter, in 1980, went to an event with Carter in 1980, in Dayton, Ohio, but he left his guns at the bus depot. Mm-hmm. He got within arm's reach of the president. By the way, Jerry Parr was on Carter's left shoulder at that very event. Wow. So, we're here, 1981, March 30th. Reagan finishes this kind of speech. It's a pretty good speech. He actually rewrote that speech by hand. For anyone who thinks Ronald Reagan didn't write his own speeches, I found the rewritten draft in the archives. Oh, wow. The archives. He walks out. He walks out. He's heading towards this one Behind the rope is John Hinckley. John Hinckley, that morning, had woken up in his crappy hotel, opened the newspaper, the Washington Star, and seen on page A4, the going could be at the Hilton at 2 p.m. I'm going to take my little gun, 22 caliber revolver, head to the hotel and see how close I can get. 15 feet, the distance of a free throw. Go shoot a free throw. That's how close John Hinckley was to the President of the United States. Reagan approaches. John Hinckley pulls out his gun. He unleashes six shots in 1.7 1.7 seconds is the time it takes me to say 1.7 seconds. Right. First shot hits Jim Brady in the head. The Second shot hits Tom Del Dante, a D.C. police officer in the back. By then, Jerry Parr, 50-year-old Secret Service agent, head of the White House detail, wasn't even supposed to be there that day. Right. Jerry Parr had asked another agent, let me get close to the president this day. I don't know him very well. He wasn't even supposed to be there. Grabs the president in four-tenths of a second, faster than you can process it, and starts shoving the seven-year-old president towards that open limousine door. Right. The third shot goes high. We're not surprised the third shot went high, because Hinckley, though he took a ton of target practice, only at stationary targets. Right. Four shot. Hits Tim McCarthy, secret service agent, swiveled to take the bullet. Not wearing a bulletproof vest, he's shot in the chest as Reagan and Tarr flash behind him. But this shot, this is an interesting 1972 Lincoln Continental. the doors open backwards. Mm-hmm. They flash behind the door. The bullet hits the armored window as they flash behind it. The sixth shot cracks across the driveway. Only later, they realized that that bullet snapped off the side quarter panel of the limousine, slipped through a gap two and a half inches wide between the door and the door frame, and hit Reagan five inches below his left armpit as they tumbled in the car. The door slams shut. The driver of the limousine slams down the gas, praying to God he doesn't run over his friend Tim McCarthy because he will crush him to death. 13,000 pound limousine. And in the back, put yourself in this limousine at this moment. It's utterly silent. There's no noise because there's so much armor. You can't hear anything. Jerry Parr looks out. The screaming people he can't hear. He's in this limousine, looks down the street, sees three men on the cement, a bullet hole in the window. He knows there's been an assassination attempt. And they're taken off like a bat out of hell, flying down this street. They barely miss hitting a woman pushing a straw across the street. Right. The streets are Pivot on to Connecticut Avenue. They're heading down Connecticut Avenue. Reagan props up Reagan in the backseat runs his hands up and down his side, checks him out. Reagan says, I think I'm okay, but I think think he hurt my rib, throwing me in the car. And Parr's like, okay, he's okay. All right, we're heading back to Crown. We're heading back to Crown. The code name for the White House, Right. Right. on his radio he says. "Mm -hmm." Parr, 30 seconds later, Reagan's entire presidency changes. 30 seconds later, Jerry Parr looks over at Reagan, realizes the president's in a great deal of distress. Great frothy blood is on his lips. He's dabbing it with a napkin he'd taken from the hotel. Right, it's all Poland.
5: goes, this is trouble. What do I do?
6: If there's an actual assassination attempt, like this could be like a decapitation strike. At this moment in history, Cold War, height of the Cold War, secret documents which I've seen now that are declassified, moving across the top officials in the United States government about imminent, imminent Soviet military intervention in Poland. Is this a decapitation strike? Is there another guy waiting for us at the hospital? What do I do? They have a medical facility at the White House. The most secure building in the free world, the White House. Jerry Parr looks at the president, realizes he's in distress, he's having a hard time breathing, he's "I like, broke this little, we got to go to the hospital. He makes that split-second decision. They detour from the White House to the hospital. They get to the hospital three minutes, three minutes after the shoot. Reagan insists on walking inside. Parr thinks, ah, you want to be a cowboy, huh? Reagan hitches up his pants. Michael Deaver and his body man pull up in a car right behind him. And they see him get up. The body man's like, oh, wow, he looks good. He hitched up his pants. That's the Reagan, I know. Right. Deaver is not so sanguine. He thinks, oh, my God, he does not look so good. Reagan insists on walking inside the hospital. He gets in about 20 feet, collapses like a dead weight into the arms of his agents. I interviewed a paramedic who was right there saw all this happening. Paramedic said, Dell, I saw the president's eyes roll in the back of his head, and I thought he was code city, meaning he's going to die. They rush him over the trauma bay. They throw him on the trauma bay. A nurse, they, they this suit, they've cut off this brand new suit, his brand new suit given to my Nancy Reagan. Mm-hmm. Not a good idea to cut off a brand new suit given to you by Nancy Reagan. <laughs> they cut that thing right off. Right. He, it's gone. He's naked on the table. A nurse, Wendy Koenig, is trying to get his blood pressure. She can't detect it. She begins to sob. His blood pressure is so low. He's a 70-year-old man. Remember right. this. Can't get his blood pressure. It's so low. She starts to cry. The last time, and she has a flashback, the one time she ever saw her father cry, when she came home on November 22nd, 1963, right. and saw her father. Come. So let me ask, let me ask you. When, when don't we, stop it. No. Uh, okay. <laughs> we just keep going. Okay. No don't <laughs> Keep going. Okay. All right, all right. So they're in the trauma bay and they're trying to resuscitate him. Everyone's doing their jobs. This is like the height. This is the beginning of great trauma care in the United States. In, in the United States, in 1970s, 1970s, you had a better chance of surviving a bullet wound in Vietnam than you did on the streets of D.C better chance. But they've reinstituted how they did trauma care at, at GW Hospital. And they made it like everyone has a job. Everyone's doing something. She's trying to get his blood pressure. She finally gets it. It's 60. By the way, anything under is shot. he is screwing. They think he's going to die. I didn't interview a single person who treated the president at that moment who thought he would. This technician threads a three foot long IV line from Reagan's right elbow all the way to his heart so they get better measurements on pressure and get fluids to the heart quickly. And she is checking this. Only then does she look up. She does her job. She looks up and goes, oh, what are all these guys here with Uzis in the earpieces? And she looks down and sees it's Reagan. <gasps> she can't concentrate. She turns around, gets smelling salts off the shelf, and does it to focus. They do their jobs. They're pumping it. They're doing everything. They, tr- they pump them full of fluids. They get his blood pressure up. They stabilize them. But they still don't know what's wrong with him. Finally, a Vietnam vet comes in. He had actually been an intern doing like some anesthesiology thing. Right. Totally. But he had been a helicopter pilot in Vietnam and had crashed and been beat up and shot and all kinds right. of stuff. He walks up and sees a tiny little slit right inside. And if you have a dime, this, the bullet got flattened into the, pretend this is a dime, bullet gets flattened into the shape of a dime and hits him edgewise so there's no blood. But it hits a rib and tumbles end over end through the lung, chewing up arteries and tissue and just bleeding like crazy. They know he's been shot. The guy was. I think that's a bullet wound. They go, oh my God, it's a bullet wound. A doctor checks his lungs, you know, hits this ho- the, ho- the right side hollow, like a drum. Right. The left side solid. solid. It means it's filled with blood. No. They decide we got to do a chest tube. They insert a chest tube, drain blood. Chest tube. A chest tube. A tube right into the chest to drain tube. the blood, to relieve the pressure. That usually solves everything, right? You get shot in the chest, 90% of the time they don't remove the bullet. They leave it there. They just remove because it it's already sterilized when it hits you. So they, they, blood drains, and it drains, and it drains, and it drains, it doesn't stop. On this day, seven-year-old Ronald Rick would lose more than 50% of his total blood volume. Good lord. Yep. 70 years old. And medical texts, by the way, ER texts, blood pressure lower than 60, shooting victim, his age, that much blood loss, more than a 50% chance you will, you will not make it. Wow. Yep. So they have a decision to make. What do they do? They take him to surgery. We, gotta, we stop the bleeding stabilizer, and stabilize we get this bullet. We have to find this bullet. They're in surgery. And I'm not, you know, the book, let's, let's, it's a nonfiction book, so I don't, right. I don't kill Reagan in the book. Right. Um, but um, they're in surgery. And, and, like, that's a really dramatic tale that I've read, right? It's really cool. A lot of people don't know right. that story. Yeah. For me, the moment when I'm reporting this book, I interviewed more than 125 people read all these documents. The moment for me that it was a true, like, reporting process that I really fell in love with, was when I tracked down Dr. David Adelberg. Dr. David Adelberg was a 31-year-old surgical intern on March 30th, 1981. Nobody, he woke up that morning to do gallbladder surgery. Well, he gets roped into Reagan surgery, right? Because the doctor, the main surgeon, the Navy guy, named Ben Aaron, wanted his normal team. No VIP treatment, everyone was trying to go on to this, like, oh, the president, no, no, I want my normal team. And as Ben Aaron is in Reagan's chest hunting frantically for that bullet, worried it's going to slip into an artery and kill the president, shoot in his brain and kill him, 31-year-old Dr. David Albert reached his hand in the president's chest, gently tucked the president's beating heart in his hand, and nestled it aside. In a room surrounded by armed secret service agents ready to pounce at the slightest misstep, an unscreened 31-year-old surgical intern literally held the beating life of the president in his hand.
1: That is truly an amazing story. That's
6: got to be some of the best radio we've had on the show. They find the bullet, the bullet. They find the bullet to take it out. And it's an inch from Reagan's heart. Wow. Now, I'd like to say that Ronald Reagan's life literally hung the balance of a split second, a split second decision, and a mere inch. If Jerry pars a split second slow, Reagan's a sitting duck. If he's a split second slow, the trajectory of the bullet hits Reagan in the head. Wow. Split-second decision. If Jerry Part goes to the White House, not the hospital, Reagan, Reagan dies. dies. And one inch, <clears throat> how close it was to the president's heart. Hits his heart, he dies. So, I mean, oh.
1: let, let, let's be honest. I mean, the, the mm-hmm. trauma care that day, I oh. mean, because we remember oh. the oh. chaos, those of us, and, and, and those around the table, for those of you oh. who can oh. hear the mumbling, it, that is a tremendous story. Oh. When, oh. Let me ask you, when, when you were writing this book, uh, the Reagan family... The Reagan Library tends to be very guarded about uh, talk about the day that day in 1981. They haven't been very open about it. <clears throat> the, the reality is, how open were they when you were writing this book? Did you get a lot of cooperation from the Reagan administration? Oh.
6: well, Nancy Reagan, um, you know, light my cigar real quick.
1: Well, that's what we do yeah. here on Backroom Politics.
2: No, just put um. you, pull it down. Pull it. While, there you go. While you're lighting this cigar, let me see. I think you should make a, a CD of this. Yeah.
1: Oh, no, no. We're going to
2: keep this one. We're going to keep this
1: one.
6: So, uh, okay. So, all
1: right. So, so Reagan Library, that. they were
5: super helpful.
6: You know, the archive has all this material. Like I said, I found his handwritten draft of that speech. Mm-hmm. You know, he did that by hand. You know, people think Reagan was this kind of like bumbling guy. But he made that speech so much better, had a good flow of sentences. Um, they also let me see, in this day, I said it recalibrated Reagan's presidency. I do not exaggerate. So Reagan, at this point in time, many people don't remember, had the lowest approval rating of any president that early in his first term. Right. Bottom. Al Hay, like a, the, the stuff down in El Salvador, the Russians, the economy's stunned. Nothing's going well. Here it is. The, everything's tanked, and our president just got shot. The last four presidents who were shot in office all died. Here's Ronald Reagan, shot. And What do we learn about Ronald Reagan? My argument is that we are always looking for that unscripted moment, that moment where we get true insight into our leaders, right? Right. Because everything's so horribly scripted today. You know, it, it, it. all right, at 2.27 p.m., March 3, 1981, the script gets tossed out the window. There's no more script. Right. What do we learn about Ronald Reagan? His wife comes into the emergency room. Nancy, they obviously love each other. Passionate love story. She comes in and looks at him. What Reagan says is, honey, I forgot to duck and immediately funny right funny line Bart, Jack Dempsey he had this memory of that but what does that tell us about Ronald Reagan he cared more about his wife's feelings than his own
3: right. he's a brave
6: guy alright he gets wheeled into surgery he sees his three top eights who's minding the store right. we wish someone had been Al Haig was we're, well, we're going yes. to get to that, right. get to that. <laughs> then he gets wheeled into surgery he's in surgery and he looks up around the guys around him and says I hope you're all
3: Republicans <laughs>
6: yeah. right he goes back down and gets put to sleep and these words get out to the public, and it's unscripted, and we realize, oh my gosh, this is the guy we want to be president at this time. We have sympathy for him. Obviously, he's been shot, but he built this bond through his heroism and just being a stoic guy that we view ourselves as Americans, right? And I think that was all incredibly important, and it built a bond with the American people that David Broder told me before he passed away. He's like, Bill, oh, you don't understand that the bond that he built the American people on this day never wavered. His approval he went down, of course up and down. Right. But he didn't get indicted. He didn't get impeached right. in a grand contra. It would have wrecked a lot of presidencies. Right. And it's because people had this good will for him. From when this day. when when we when we look back at that death
1: and and we look at the chaos surrounding the events of the actual shooting of the president, there were a lot of people involved in uh in in getting the president taken care of, but it was the people around him. There seemed to be a lot of confusion that day. Obviously, the, there's going to be a lot of confusion when the president shot. However, you had George Bush, then vice president, out of town, en route, on Air Force Two at the time. Was there, how bad was the chaos in trying to get the word back to the next in line for an incapacitated president to George Bush how did you find that out and what did
6: you find? oh you know you raised a really good point there how so, you get by Al Hague? alright well all we're right. going to talk about Al Haig in a second alright so, um, so Bush is politicking in Texas right he's flying back from Texas well, he's actually still in Texas but here's this happening they fly to Texas they fly back I didn't realize this but Air Force Two even back in 1981 did not have secure voice communication right and so they couldn't really talk to the White House what was going on It was so insecure, in fact, I tracked down two University of Alabama graduate students who listened in to all the communications on their ham radio sets. Wow. Pretty cool, right? (laughs) And so, like, they're texting, like, through the, you know, the text, the telex things Uh to him and messages about what happened. And Bush, this was a great moment for Bush, too. And the reason is, like, I really kind of liked him in this moment, because he's like, he took notes, he wrote all these notes down, and I tracked down this guy on the plane, and Bush recognized this was a historic moment. And he did an interview with his staffer who wrote it all out, everything he said, what he's going through at that moment, what it was like on the plane. And Bush said, you know, one of the things he said was like he and Reagan, he admitted, had this contentious relationship up until this point. And he said, you know, I hope someone's holding Nancy Reagan's hand. Now, that's what went through Bush's mind. He's coming back and he says, I'm not going to land. They wanted him to helicopter from Andrews to the White House to be there fast. He said, no, 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 only the president lands on the South Lawn. I'm going to fly to the observatory and be driven there. And that, like, that built a bond, too, with Reagan's people who were very kind of weary. Like, We know that Jim Baker, Bush's guy, right. was Reagan's chief of staff, Correct. again showing how secure Reagan was as a guy. Like, I can have my former nemesis guy as my chief of staff. And this reminds me of a great moment in the book. Not the book, but like in history. All right. So you're talking about presidential incapacitation. Right. The 25th Amendment passed. Um, you could replace an incapacitated president with a vice president if everyone in the cabinet agrees, and they send a letter right. to the Hill and all that. All right. They're debating this. Ed Meese, Jim Baker, the two top guys in, in, in Reagan's life, next to D- with Deaver, right, in the White House, the counselor, chief of staff, have a debate about whether they should invoke the 25th Amendment in a janitor's closet at the hospital. Really? They're in a janitor's closet going, do we do this or not? What do we do? The president's unconscious. We've never confronted this before. They don't want to send the message to the world that the 70-year-old president is too old. They don't want to make it look like he's hurt. But at the same time, there are two Soviet subs two minutes closer to being able to lob a warhead on Washington than normal.
1: How close, how close were they, in your findings in the book, were they to
6: invoking the 25th Amendment? Yeah, they, were, they were close, but Baker and, um, and some others on his team would not have it. Uh, I interviewed Fred Fielding. Dick Darwin, that's right. Right. He took the documents. Fred Fielding thinks they should have.
0: They should have invoked
6: it. Still to this day. Well, now he does. At the time, they did. But right. now he's like, looking back, I think we should have invoked
5: it. What, what, was but, it... When, what, H- when he was with Hague.
6: No, no. Fielding Haley. was in the sit room.
5: Okay. I don't so, got the situation. But was, let's But, but I think Oh, H- that's wasn't
6: Hague, right. Wasn't Hague,
1: right. Hague there? Hague was in the sit room. I'm sorry, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, I thought you yeah, yeah. said it with Right. No, no, no. So was let's, was, let's go back. Great. So my question goes back to, if they were that close mm-hmm. okay and and apparently in your book you you disclose the fact that there was an active discussion to invoke the 25th amendment yep. uh and they obviously could not consult bush on this subject as he was in an unsecured aircraft mm-hmm. somewhere what could we have done exactly <laughs> when it, he couldn't do anything this this leads to the situation in the white house press room uh Before we get to Al Haig's press room discovery, Al Haig and several of the key cabinet members or or key administrative staff at the White House for Reagan at the time are in the situation room getting briefed by the director of secret service and the medical team. Uh, Treasury
6: secretary. Treasury secretary, Secretary, correct.
1: What is the mentality and what's the thought process going through in the situation room at the time?
6: right. I had great insight into this because we know the situation room is one of the most secure rooms in the U.S. government, right? Mm -hmm. And we've all seen the iconic picture of when they took out Osama bin Laden, and there's that, the picture of the compound in front of Hillary Clinton in that picture. And you look at it, they've gone into the picture, into that map that she had of the compound, and pixelated it, right. so our enemies can't tell the resolution of our spy Right. That room's that secure. Right. Dick Allen, the National Security Advisor, walked into that room with a tape recorder, and hit record, and it ran for four and a half hours, and he let me have those tapes. What did you find in those tapes? They're amazing documentary history of the fights going on, how Haig really did not understand presidential succession. He bungled it a couple times. Casper Weinberger gets in a fight with him and screws up the DEFCON levels. He's like, oh, we should go to DEFCON 2, meaning let's tone it down so we're not going to scare the country. Uh, DEFCON 2, uh, no, no. He thought they were on DEFCON 2. Right. No, no, no. DEFCON 2 is like right next 1%. to the button. Right. No, no, they were on DEFCON 4. And, like, it was so fascinating to see this, like, back and forth. And you can hear on the tapes, like, like Haig wanted control of everything. He's like, we're going to run everything by me. We're not going to talk to me or do this. And he looks up at the TV, and he sees Larry Speaks, who'd come back from the hospital answering questions and bungling it. I mean, the guy was like, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Maybe the press knew more than, than Speaks did. Right. And, and that's like two, re- two things go through Dick Allen's mind at this moment and David Gergen's mind who was there. One, um, it's much worse to look like you're hiding something. No, it's much worse to look incompetent than if you're hiding something. He looked up. The government didn't know. How do you not know? We have the Soviets about to attack. What do we do? And so Al Haig says, i got to solve this. He runs upstairs, grabs Dick Allen. They're heading up the thing. Dick's like, where are we going? He speaks. is making a mess of this. we got to go fix this. And Dick's like, wait, wait, wait. Al Al Haig gets on the podium. And Dick Allen, this is going through the mind of the national security director, the national security advisor at this moment in U.S. history. National security advisor. This is what goes through his head. Al Haig's legs are shaking. Because, you know, he had this heart quadruple bypass like a year earlier. Right. He's, his ring, his west point ring, is clacking against the podium. He's shaking. And Dick Allen goes, oh, my God, he's going to collapse. If he collapses, do I drag the Secretary of State off the stage and continue the briefing myself, or do I summon help?
1: We've got to go to break. Can you stay for another sure, segment? Sure. Okay, we're, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're going to continue our discussion about Raw down, Town, the best-selling book on the New York Times bestseller list with its author, best-selling author, uh, Del Weaver. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us for this fascinating segment. We'll be back. You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's back room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250, from cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners. Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelly's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shellysbackroom.com slash private party. Shelly's Back Room, the place to be as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. Live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington D.C. Joining us for a second segment is best-selling New York Times author uh, Del Weaver, who is the author of *Rawhide Down*, the preeminent book about the assassination attempt on then President Ronald Reagan. Uh, Dell, when we went to break, we talked about Al Haig and and his infamous press room uh, <laughs> appearance. Where what compelled Al Haig? to go up to the press room, address an already rabid, chaotic <laughs> after a, a botched Deavers press issue. What That's compelled... Be, uh, no, I'm no, sorry. sorry. Speaks. Sorry. I'm sorry. Larry Speaks. I'm sorry. Larry Speaks botches it. What compelled Al Haig to actually go up there and say, I am in charge?
6: All right. Um, so Al Haig had seen Speaks on TV down there, mm-hmm. and he got concerned that he wanted one message going through, and it had... To they had spent on these tapes, I could hear um, them spending 20 minutes on a simple message, like mm-hmm. to the foreign government, and they wanted to be very calibrated, even though they didn't want to say anything. Well, he runs upstairs to do this, and he gets up there, and, you know, Nick Allen, as we said... That,
2: incidentally, does not seem to me to be a bad idea. No, it was a good idea. No.
6: They were trying to be very careful, and speaks as wrecking their plan, according to Al Haig, right? But Al Haig had said, no one's talking media unless we all agree. And he ignores that, runs upstairs, right, because he's Al Haig. He gets up there... And he screws up. He screws up presidential succession. He goes, as of now, I am in control here. As you all know, because the president, vice president, secretary of state in that order, vice president's on his way back. I'm in close communication with him, which frankly was not exactly true because I couldn't really talk to the vice president. And, and, and Dick Allen, in his mind, there's this great New York Times photo of Allen standing But I asked Allen, Allen about it. He's like, oh my God, in my mind. I'm like, did he really just mess that up? That cannot be. He really doesn't know what he's talking about. How can this be the guy, Al Haig, was Ford's chief of staff? So this brings up a... He he negotiated Ford... I'm sorry, he was Nixon's chief of staff, right? and he negotiated Ford's takeover. So,
1: Dell, this brings up a good question. When we talk about the secession, the one name that we don't talk about in this whole deal is Tip O'Neill, the actual person who would succeed... In the line of succession, according to the Constitution, what is Tip O'Neill? Did you actually get an insight as to Tip O'Neill and his reaction to all this, and what was his role
6: in that first three, four hours after the shooting? Well, they, they, the White House dispatched Secret Service protection, although they don't really need it at Capitol Police, and they just kept them informed. They were briefing them constantly. They were not going to let Tip O'Neill take the reins of government. You know what I mean? And they hadn't invoked the Twenty-fifth Amendment or any succession yet. And so Tip O'Neill didn't do anything, but that reminds me of, like, one of the most poignant moments in this whole thing. So we know Reagan lives, and he issues more quips when he's at the, in the recovery room to his nurses, like, all in all, I'd rather be in Philadelphia. These are handwritten notes to Reagan Library. Right. Um, take me to L.A. where I can see the air I'm breathing. Can we shoot the scene over again, starting at the hotel? <laughs> and, uh, you know, this endears people to Reagan, right? right. So um, April 7th, the first person the administration allows to see Reagan who's not a friend, family member, close confidant, is Tip O'Neill. Remember, these are combatants, but they're kind of buddies, but combatants. And Tip O'Neill goes into this room, sees the president, gets down on a knee, gently rubs the president's head, and they both recite the 23rd Psalm, and they both cry. And I often, I, you know, a lot of I go, can you see that happening today? And I kind of joke, I'm like, well, Boehner would already be crying before he went in the room. <laughs> <laughs> but, like, but like, but you know, but like, it, just, it was one of those moments like where these, like this bonding moment between them. I think. Yeah. Um, and we were talking earlier about like you know Jim Brady. Sometimes he gets lost in this, because he really did almost die. Right. And um, there's a moment I interviewed this nurse, and it's the next day, and um, Reagan finds out. Brady is really badly hurt. He's just devastated by it. But he has another funny quip where he's like, um, you know, so so who did this? And the aide is like, oh, it was just some nut bag. Mr. President, just a nut case. Who did it. And Reagan's like, oh, that's too bad. I was kind of hoping it'd be the KGB.
0: <laughs> <laughs> then
6: again, they wouldn't have missed you. They wouldn't have missed you. <laughs> and, and also, like, in terms of Reagan's presidency, like how it recalibrated things, um, you know, you know, the notes were helpful, all those things, I think all those things were really kind of helpful. Now, you
1: know, we, we go back and we look at the press coverage that day, you know, and this is a time where we had, uh, we, where we had three news agencies, ABC, mm-hmm. NBC, CBS, and those of us who were watching uh, NBC, or ABC at the time uh, remember just the lack of coordination of information being put out by the White House, the hospital and just bad media coverage to the point where ABC News announces that the president has died and then we see and I can't remember who the anchorman was at the time on
5: it a- was it was CBS who announced it but
1: that you Brady know, had died but, but uh, it was there it was an ABC um, wasn't Harry Reasoner but it was another ABC anchor who started yelling on the air why can't we get good information and had a meltdown on the air Looking back at that day today, was was there just so much chaos? At least getting information out to the media, were there were there media regrets or were there administration regrets about the lack of coordinated flow
6: of Definitely. information to the American public? Definitely, and they talked about that after, and they did all these after action reports on how to do things better, and what people did. Mm-hmm. Um, they recognized that you know maybe uh, Baker or me should have been back at the White House that whole time, you know, yeah. to control things. Um, yeah. you know, and, like, for example, like, uh, we were talking at the break about how, you know, the world said Jim Brady died. CBS mm-hmm. news. And it was really sad. Um, so what happens is they're in the Situation Room, and Donald Reagan, the, the Treasury, then the Treasury Secretary gets handed out this note uh, from a Secret Service Station, on its written, it's Brady's dead. And he hands the note to Dick Allen. He looks at it. And the room, like, you can hear Dick Allen, like, Ooh, cause he's friends These are, this is like this isn't just the presence of esoteric exercise there. when Fred Fielding left the White House that night the last person the only car left in the driveway of the White House was Jim Brady's Jeep Wrangler and that's when Fred Fielding broke down crying You know, this was real the real thing to them And th- so Dick Allen says we need a moment of silence You know, Jim Brady's dead and the room in the situation goes hushed and I timed it for 7 seconds that's all the time they could spare Jim Brady then they go back to work and word filters out from here all over the place that Jim Brady's dead. Meanwhile, they start reporting, CBS radio, CBS news, all these things, Jim Brady's dead. And they go, they're in surgery. Uh, Art Cobrine, this kind of like total alpha male neurosurgeon's working on Brady. And a doctor comes in, or it's on the radio, and he says, you know, Jim Brady's dead. I can't use expletives on the radio here, right? No, no, family okay. shot. Okay, good. So um, and he says... You know, what do they Shit. think I'm... Since when? Yeah. <laughs> right, yeah. Thanks, Alex. Okay. They the say, guy. he says, um, you know, who the F do they think I'm operating on, a corpse? He's not dead. He lived. You know, he's doing that. And so, like, um, you know, it, there were a lot of weird, like... And when you start untangling this day, it becomes, um, it becomes bigger than it was. Like, at the time we think about it, before I got in the book, it was, oh, he got winged, he lived, whatever. Right. And historians kind of ignored it because... You know, historians go backwards through time, and it's hard to get to the 70th day of someone's term to find out that was the most significant day or one of the most. But I came in as a crime reporter laterally. I found all this great material, including, like, Reagan. The one line I thought really bonded the American public to Reagan was when he said, I hope you're all Republicans, right? Right. And the doctor goes, today, Mr. President, we're all Republicans, even though he's a flaming liberal, right? Right. (laughs) He goes, we're all Republicans. Well, Reagan, to his credit, like, people say, oh, he had all these great quips. He just tossed this stuff off the cuff. What I discovered about Reagan was he's a very sharp dude, right? Very smart, um, much smarter than he thought he was. He understood his role. This role was the stage right now, right? He's in the operating, the emergency room 10 minutes before that, and he's with Jerry Parr. And he looks up at Jerry Parr and says, I hope they're all Republicans. And Jerry Parr looks down, and Jerry Parr's not laughing. Jerry Parr's going out of his freaking mind. <laughs> President shot. Oh, my God, he could die. That's not funny. The nurse is like thinking, you know, you really need to stop joking, Mr. President, because you could die. is not funny. And but Reagan had the sense. I'm going to keep. That's a good line. It fell flat. I'm going to put it in my back pocket, and I'm going to deliver it perfectly. And when you look back at Reagan's filmography, better than 53 movies, right? Right. And I watched a lot of these movies when I researched the book, and it struck Even me. Even bedtime for Bonzo? I did. <laughs> which actually is a better movie? that's hard to uh, act opposite a chip, uh, okay? okay? But but um. So I looked through his filmography. What were two? Two, what were Reagan's two most famous films? No Googling. No. the most famous films. Uh, was, well, when he was The Gipper. The yeah, Gipper. New Rockman. What's the second one? Bedtime for Bonet. Nope. No. King's Row. Yeah. King's uh-huh. Row. Yep. His two best scenes in those two best movies? Hospital-like deathbed scenes. Oh, okay. Right? The Gipper, he dies, and he wakes up and says, Where's the rest of me? The, the, the title of his autobiography in the 1960s. Because he had his life amputated and he'd almost died. And so, if anyone understood the importance of that moment, going to an operating room with the world focused on you, it was Ronald Reagan. Right.
1: By the way, the guy was thinking of, Frank Reynolds on ABC. Yes, Frank was, Reynolds. Oh, yes. Frank Reynolds yes. went off camera, looked off camera, and and said, "quote Let's na- let's try and nail this down." But
2: let's yes, go back, that's a good point. Let, let's
1: no. go back to Nancy Reagan. Yes. Uh, Nancy Reagan, by all accounts in media and books, and including your book was a stalwart, seeing her, her this, this truly romance for the ages, her, the love of her life on a surgery table, almost dead. Reports came out that she was actually a rock in all this and tried getting everybody back on track. How accurate were those reports in your investigation
6: into the book? I think very. I think she, like even into her hospital care, like there's this one, got, this one uh, doctor who's like a resident, and the, the, res, the doctors couldn't had a hard time dealing with her because she was so detailed. She's the son of a surgeon, a famous brain surgeon, and she had all these questions. And they finally just like put the underling and said, "You have to deal with this lady. We can't deal with her anymore." Um, what's interesting about Nancy Reagan, this day was like the most traumatic of her life, and it, I think and it did influence her decision to start seeing the uh, spiritualist, you know, like mm-hmm. the, the the fortune person, right, um, which got her a lot of criticism. I'm not. I'm sure that's fair because I think that you know people when confronted with the loss of the love of their life. They were very much to people like that um, it's fair criticism. Um, but she, you know, I, so I, I give this talk at the Reagan Library, and in walks Nancy Reagan. And she had not, she did not do an interview for the book. She refused to talk. She read the book in, uh, over two days, and a friend told me she sobbed at the end of it. She walks in, and sits in the front row, and I have to deliver this talk, 400 people. Nancy Reagan in the front row. How do I change this? You know, because it's very. Oh, my God, I don't want to, you know, she's 93 years old or something. What do I do? And afterwards, Jerry Parr was with me. And sometimes, like, we look back at history. I that was so long ago. But, like, you know, what it was it, Faulkner's quote, the past isn't past, isn't, or is not dead yet. Or right. a very beautiful quote. And to me, that's like Nancy Reagan comes up to Jerry Parr, grabs Jerry Parr by the shoulder, and says, Jerry, thank you for giving me my life back. Thirty years later.
1: Now, in a... You have a copy of your book. I got two spots. I was like, oh my God,
3: did that just happen? Yeah.
1: You you have a copy of your book, Mm -hmm. which is signed by the entire presidential detail that was on Reagan that day, his body team. Goals to get it signed by all Right. When you talk to them, Mm -hmm. we hear the quips about Secret Service agents. They sign up to take a bullet for the president. In this case, it actually happened. Did, did they have a sense of they didn't do their job right, they did their job right that day, uh, they would do it again the exact same way? What is the sense you got from the body team that day?
6: I think that there was a huge sense of failure, they felt like. Like, you don't want the president getting shot. Um, they did the same advance, that same event. They'd been to that hotel 110 times with presidents from 1971 to 1981, last decade And they did it the same way every time that rope line went the same places, just to keep the crowd back. And they didn't think about it. Complacent. If this had been Baltimore, or this had been Philadelphia, or New York, they would have been on edge, because it's all new to them. Right. This is so routine. A police officer going to that gets roped into it. He's the one who tackles Hickley, one of the guys who tackles him so violently that he shatters his watch. Before he went to the Hilton, he said, you're not doing your normal patrol today, you're going to the the Hilton. He He had thinking about putting on his bulletproof vest. It's like, eh, it's just that he puts it back in the locker and goes. And so they have this huge sense of complacency, and they felt terrible about it. At the same time, the actions of one or two agents, Tim McCarthy, who pivoted and took a bullet without thinking, and Jerry Potter, who acted without thinking. Because there are two interesting trends colliding at this moment to save Reagan's life. Trauma care gets very good. If this is 1976, and, or this is 19, March of 1977, and he had somehow beaten Ford and then beaten Carter, Reagan dies because the trauma care is not there to save them. There's not enough time. They don't know what they're doing. They, they're just reacting haphazardly in the operating room. It's a mess. The other thing that saves him is, in the late 70s, so in 1972, George Wallace gets shot in World, Maryland, right? And he's shot by Arthur Griffin. And the detail, one guy gets shot in the neck, another guy gets shot, they dive after him. Wallace falls the ground. Blood is spreading on his, his white shirt. And an the agent's right there, and he froze. He's just there frozen. And you can see the video. And Wallace's wife covers the presidential candidate, covers the body, right, covers the body. And they learn from this. They say, you know, we have to learn how to react faster. Our training is not intense enough. And so these agents out in L.A. on their own are like, we're going to team up with the L.A. SWAT team, and we're going to take over this old drunk farm in in Saugus, I think, California, and we're going to do all these intense drills. They have helicopters, live fire, bombs going off, throwing people in front of motorcades, and it's called AOP training, attack on principle. Very realistic. They adopt this. So that by the time this happens, Jerry Parr, the fifth-year-old head of the Secret Service detail, is going through the paces at Beltville like everyone else, two weeks out of every eight, sweating his balls off, you know, running through smoke screens, diving in front of the president over and over and over again until it becomes muscle memory. He also they also instituted a ten minute medicine class. Not that they teach you medicine in ten minutes, but here's ten things you need to know to keep someone alive for ten minutes. And one of those things was bright frothy blood, probably from the lungs, get them to the hospital. They don't do that. he doesn't make it. And so these two things just
2: kind of, bam, and Reagan lives. Look, let's, let's we're, talk. We're, real, I, I wanted we're, to ask a question. Go ahead, remind, more. remind me, remind us what, what the world
5: knew in the days after, because my recollection is, as you say, it came so close, but we didn't know that. They didn't want the world to know how close know. it was. So
6: Tell everyone us about, had, everyone had, I heard that, uh, or equities, it's new to me, that term, but, like, in terms of news media and everything, but, like, the equities of this were such that the Secret Service didn't want to, they wanted to focus on the heroism and everything, but not admit that Reagan came that close, right? And the White House certainly did not want the public to know, the 70-year-old President of the United States, whose health and age were already matters. Remember the way he eviscerated, um, Jimmy Monday, Carter. 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 <clears throat> oh, no, that was Mondale. Mondale, yeah, Mondale, Mondale in 84. Players. But that was an issue with the 80 campaign, too. You know, he kept right. joking, this is the 39th anniversary of my 30th birthday. Right. You know, he kept joking about that. And so, you know, that. and I think that they've kept that quiet. I think as years went on, more came out. Yeah. But not in a way, like, you. I read an AP story, like, from 1995, where the doctors like, oh, he almost died, They published something. And something else. But not in the way, I think, that kind of, like, framed it all in this context and tapestry where you really understand that like a guy's life was literally at stake, hung in the balance of seconds, split seconds and minutes. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't
3: look back, oh he was fine, whatever. No. You know, he lost born in of blood.
6: But
1: Let, let's let's talk a little bit about about John Hinckley, uh the, the assailant. Mm-hmm. Um John Hinckley came from a very nondescript, non troubled background. Uh John Hinckley's parents were middle-income. His his father was, I believe, a doctor. Uh, His mom was a professional in her own right. It it, it seems like this household that Hankley came from was a stereotypical American middle-class tale, yet he, he was obviously a troubled person. As you investigate this book, when did the trouble start, and when did his fascination with taking out not just Reagan but any president when did that start and and how come the Secret Service missed it that's
6: a great question um all right so Hinckley's family was totally normal mm-hmm. his dad owned an oil services company very wealthy mm-hmm. um, but he started having some serious like loneliness and kind of other mental health issues so much that so they started seeing him to a psychiatrist um, his family his family did. psychiatrist and he wanted to, like, he was a loner. He wanted to be a songwriter. You know, he went out to L.A. a couple times in his life and, like, just lived in hotels, watched TV, ate fast food, never really did anything, tried to be a songwriter and couldn't. He was very lonely. In 1976, he's watching this movie, Taxi Driver. And he becomes enthralled with Jodie Foster, who's playing a 12-year-old prostitute movie. So much so that in 1980, he tracks across the country to New Haven, lies to his parents that I'm going to a writing seminar at New Haven, at Yale, where she's a student, getting away from Hollywood. He tracks her down what room she's in and starts passing notes under her daughter. On top of that, he gets her phone number and starts calling her. And how do I know he called her? How do I know what was said? He taped them. He taped the calls. So he's taping these calls, and in the calls are so sad. She's like, uh, you got to stop calling me, whatever. What's your name? John Hendricks? You know, getting his name wrong. And at one point, I remember very vividly, it struck me, he's like, uh, I hear laughing in the background. What's everyone laughing at? She says, they're laughing at you. He was wounded by this. He had to prove something. So he goes out to track down Carter. He thinks that'll be a good idea. And he tracks Carter to Dayton and doesn't do it. He goes to Nashville, Tennessee. And he goes to this event, and he changes his mind. You know, I can't kill the president. I'm leaving. He's going through airport security, and they find his guns in the bag. they take the guns. He's fined 62 dollars 50 and sent on his way. And no one connected the dots. Now, one, he's leaving as the president's already there, so he's not like an event. He doesn't come up on the radar because he talked to his psychiatrist only once, the very first meeting of psychiatrists, psychiatrist, he said, I really like guns, and I like Jody Foster. And that was the last time the psychiatrist ever asked him to raise that issue again. Dude,
1: does the Secret Service, in looking back at it, I mean, obviously we didn't have the intelligence gathering capabilities that we do today, but does the Secret Service feel that they somehow failed in putting him on the radar? Or was this just a matter of circumstance that they couldn't even prevent? There's no way that
6: the, the guy had not... It's not like he had. they had ever caught him near the president or any way to recognize him near the president. I think the lesson the Secret Service took away from this was we need to make it harder to get close to the president yeah. because there are a lot of lunatics in this world. And so now, like, the, the, you go to the Washington Hilton, that entrance is encased in this big cement bunker. Right. And the president goes to an event, he drives into a tent yeah. that's lined with Kevlar. Why? But they don't want you getting, getting in and out of the car as your most vulnerable, apparently. And so they don't want you seeing that. And so that all changed. All those, they, they, start, they set magnetometers for events after that. And at the beginning, the White House was like, no, 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 they had argued about magnetometers for years. No, 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 they'll piss off our donors. They'll upset people. They don't want it. No magnetometers. After this event, they put magnetometers up, and they started catching all these old ladies going to the White House with guns from out of state because they heard D.C. was dangerous, right? right. And uh, people started realizing, you know what? You're, you don't have an A-list party in this town unless you have a magnetometer. All right. In, in, in doing the book, we've, we've got eight minutes left in the segment. We're obviously doing
1: away with Tell Me a Story. This is so fascinating. Uh, oh, I'm so sad. I know you're sad by this, Congressman. Um, and so are our listeners. Uh, <laughs> when, when you compile the book and gunning all oh, the access that you did <clears throat> with all the major players, when you look back at this, was this truly two questions come to mind number one this was a truly monumental point in, in American history did this help define the American presidency as having the electorate personally invested in the presidency forward does that make sense I, th- I think in a
6: way it did I think more so it, it provided us like this unscripted look at a guy's character because the one day you can't fake it the day you shot you know, And we're like, that's who you really are. He really is this guy. And people like that. You know, They could never tell who he really was. He's this actor. And
5: right? You know, Alan Moore. That, that, it, it's, it's certainly true. What's intriguing, though, is because the White House didn't want the world to know how seriously he'd been hit. The Secret Service didn't want to know that they'd come so close to screwing up. So people knew he'd been shot, some kind of a glancing blow by this whack job. But when he joked in a way that fed the narrative that he wasn't hurt that badly, he's, he's just this close yes. to yes. being dead and he's joking, which you know so well, but as I reflect on it back in the day, it was like he was shot, but he's kind of joking about it. Thank God it wasn't yes. as serious as it could have been. Yes, but I think that we also all knew that, and
6: I was in the sixth at the time, but, you know, <laughs> interviewing a lot of people, I guess. you know. He, was 70 years old, mm-hmm. old guy. He had been shot. He'd been in the hospital.